From Beyond Marketing, it's The 20-Minute Call, a podcast about the dreamers, boundary pushers, rebels, and champions of the skydiving industry. Each episode is a narrative journey highlighted by the highs, lows, and luck that the skydiving industry delivers as told by the most influential people within the sport. If you've ever dreamed of becoming a skydiver, perhaps opening a drop zone, or becoming the next world champion, check out the 20-minute call hosted by me, James LeBarry. My guest today made his first jump in 1984 and has since gone on to build a successful career as a competitor, coach, and multi-drop zone owner. Between 1991 and 2004, he served as the team captain of the Swiss national teams and became a 12-time Swiss champion. He competed in six world meets, which was highlighted by a fifth-place finish at the 2001 world meet in Spain. He also served as coach for the Austrian national team between 1997 and 1999 and the German eight-way team in 2004, which would go on to compete in two world meets, under his guidance. Though a highly decorated competitor, today's guest is most well known for his entrepreneurial success as the founder of Go Jump in Granzi, Germany, and now most notably as the owner of Go Jump Oceanside, Las Vegas, and Hawaii. Mike Vetter, welcome to the 20 Minute Call podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. How does it feel or how does that resonate with you as you hear? in two paragraphs, amazing amount of achievement through your life uh, so very quickly. Yeah, it was a long road yeah, to come from uh, originally starting to jump 1984 and uh, until today with a lot of different perspectives, but all related to skydiving, really. So, Mike, you're originally from Switzerland, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Were you in, in the military in your youth or when you were younger? Well, Switzerland, at least by then, it was necessary to join the military when you be uh, turned 19 or 20 years old. So I served uh, the initial 17 weeks. That's the initial training. And then by then, it was every year, was three weeks a year, uh, recurrency training. So I was in the Swiss military for about 10 years, yeah, until I, I turned uh, I think 28 or 30 years old. So was your introduction to skydiving during that time or was it before then? No, not at all. I, my introduction was actually by my dad when I was five years old. Uh, I kind of forced him to drive me to a drop zone where I was born. The town was called Grenchen in the middle of Switzerland. And uh, he drove me there when I was five years old. And, and uh, since then I was attracted to the jumping, visited the drop zone many times and then had to wait till I was 17 that was the legal age back then in Switzerland. And uh, five days after the 17th birthday, I started my course with the static line. I mean, what appealed to you of skydiving at such a young age? Well, I'm, I'm still thinking about that. And I'm also writing in it uh, uh, in my book about it. But I think it's the freedom. It's really the freedom of flying and the freedom to be up there and, uh, and away from all the noise in a sense down here so that was always a big part of it and then later on it became obviously more the challenge of competing and be precise mm. in the free fall but i think the freedom is the main main feeling that i still uh, still feel about our sport are you still actively jumping quite a bit i haven't actually been jumping in eight years so i, I kind of stopped it uh when i came to the u.s that's kind of the interesting part but i don't I, I don't think i go back to jumping anymore my mm. oldest son is now uh, is now the big skydiver in the family he's just turned 20 and has already f uh, 5500 jumps and a tandem instructor as well yeah he's full-time instructor here in oceanside in the location as well yeah amazing in my preparation for our interview today there's a theme that's really come out to me about you mike and that is family is very important to you I noticed that you honor your mother by uh, referencing her on, on one of your airplanes. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about, about your family? Yeah, I believe, and, and this is actually the, the, the big story of my life, I believe, because I lost my father when I was very young. <clears throat> I was 12 years old when he died to uh, initially lung cancer. Uh, it was a, was a, a very intense experience uh, for myself and, and kind of made 
made after all made everything possible that came after in my life because it was such a an impressive experience in my life when I was so young that um, it, it kind of took the fear away from me that uh, nothing more extreme could happen in in my life than losing my own father. So that was a, a definitely an important um, uh, thing in my life. And then family in general, I believe in you have uh, two brothers and one sister as well. And everybody has a. Uh, quite a few kids like one brother has three uh, daughters the other one has two um, sons and then my sister has two children we have four children so it's kind of important in our family in general i believe yes you mentioned when your father passed away that it was the end of your childhood it, it must have been a very difficult time but you've it seems that you've used that to fuel yourself your your direction can you expound on that when you say that it was the end of your childhood what did it do for you well, this is referring also to a, a book from uh, Dr. E- Edith Eager. Uh, she's living now in La Jolla. She's 95 years old. Uh, she originally went to uh, Auschwitz, was deported back in, I think, 1944 it was. And she's writing about that, you know, and asked these two questions, basically. Uh, when, I, when did your childhood end and when uh, would you like to be married to yourself? And uh, that experience is just all the, the happiness and the, the lightness of, of childhood, I believe, you know, changed at that moment because it was kind of like an experience of throwing into the real life experience that came, in my opinion, came way too early. Well, in our lives as, as brothers and sisters, but uh, I can only speak for myself in that sense, but uh, definitely for myself. So it's, it's changing that lightness of, of your childhood into kind of a seriousness, um, you know, experience. And uh, mm. that's, that's I, I believe that's what, you know, has the, uh, or is the reference I'm, I'm pointing out in this. When people of that young age go, th- you know, lose a parent that young, sometimes, you know, it, there can be, with that pain, go down a negative road. But it seems like you just, it, it fueled you. I know that you made your first jump in 1984, was that for yourself? Was that part of, you know, anything more? What led to that experience of, of jumping for the first time? I, I believe the jumping is independent from that experience with my father. It was, it was there. I don't know exactly why, because nobody in my family ever jumped or was a flying career or something. It, it was just in my genes, I guess, that I really wanted to skydive and always saw that sport as something really special and interesting. In the other way, the experience with my father when I was 12 years old, I feel like I'm more talking about not so much the fear of of jumping out of a plane, but the fear in life general that, you know, you can lose things in life and not not losing your life, but in, in a sense, you know, building up a business like Go Jump America. There were many, many situations in the last 17 years I start when I started it that you know, it's, 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 you're on the edge with, with things and it, fear could stop you from going on and making, making it a, a bigger endeavor. And that's what I'm, you know, trying to explain as well in the book, you know, and, and, and that, that's what I believe, you know, uh, was, was helping me. It freed me in a sense that I lost my father young to the point that, um, that I was free to do whatever I felt was achievable in my life. Let's fast forward then. You, you make that first jump in 1984, and you have a very successful career in the sport. And then I've read that you started a drop zone or managed a drop zone in Spain. Just give us a, a sense of that career as a competitive skydiver and then opening your first drop zone. Well, the competitive spirit, I don't know. Uh, I think initially got fired up through Tom Pyrus when I, when I watched his videos back in 1989, I think that was the, the year. And it really fascinated me. Uh, and and uh, somehow I believed we could become champions and, and motivated three other people. Two didn't even have the license in 1990. And I motivated them to join the team. And we, we went went to the land and trained four months together with Pyrus and were able to live in his house as well. It was a great experience. And he coached us to the first national title in 1991. By then, it was a super big surprise that we were able to achieve that. So these co- competitive years in, in, the, in the first place, it, it just fascinated me, the perfection in, in, in four-way, to be as precise at 120 miles and four people together 
constantly changing the situation. I mean, every jump is completely different. Every formation is different because everybody is contributing in some way to that formation. So that was just the 90s, basically, was the competitive time for me. And I really loved it. And we jumped a lot. And and then after um, 2001 in Spain, in Seville, the, the world championship, and kind of stepped away a little bit more from, from the jumping, the competitive jumping, and was looking to do something going forward with all the experience I had. So in the first couple of years, I was doing more coaching. And then 2003, it was, I, I went to Spain and, and uh, started managing the drop zone in Leo in Spain. It was kind of the same way, like almost like the com- competition in, a, in, another, uh, in another environment. So for me, it was similar, like to achieve, you know, um, make things better, uh, grow with it. And uh, that was my first experience as a drop zone manager in the end of 2003 to end of 2004. Mike, I've noticed that when I think of highly competitive people, you can sometimes see or feel that competitiveness in their personality. But you appear to me, and I don't think that we've ever spoken face-to-face as we are now, very calm, very measured, Mm -hmm. yet you are doing very big things. How do you find that balance to compete at at the very top of the sport or the top of the business in the sport and also remain centered? Well, first of all, to be honest, what you see in the outside is not necessarily what's inside. Um, Mm. It's 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 one of my big challenges in life, and I'm I'm again I'm I'm you know had the the feeling it was important to speak about that in my book, and that's coming out soon. But it's that constant finding the balance, uh, living in the moment, and for me that was when I experienced nineteen, I think nineteen ninety six and nineteen seven was the Taoism, the Chinese philosophy. Uh, that that really helped me to center more inside versus the competitive spirit in the outside. And based on an experience we had when we were fa- trying to get together a new team in 1994, we did also some analysis of our writing. And uh, especially for me, what came out was that my writing was pretty much the same like Reinhold Messner, uh, which the person did analyze before and and uh you know Reinhold Messner I'm pretty sure most of people don't still know him he was the first person achieving all the uh, I don't know it in feet but all all the mountains in the Himalayas that are above 8000 meters without oxygen so he was the first person to be able to do that and in a way that was my you know uh, capability of achieving things but on the other hand it was also defined as like if you're on the high mountain you go look for the next higher mountain so there's never uh, uh, you know arriving at some point that you feel like actually the happiness and and um, and achievement so the Taoism itself you know is is, is hard to describe in words but um, I think the simplest way to say it is it's just you know follow the flow of the water and and let things evolve which doesn't mean like you're just passive and waiting it's actually the opposite, uh, but you just don't force it. So it, it's happening more. And I think that's in general a really nice way of, of putting it together. And for me, it helped me a lot to combine these competitive sides that I have inside of me and will never go away, in a, I think, in a human being anyway, which is a good thing. Uh, but on the other hand, to be calm, like especially with you know my, my four children, being at home is a different world than you know competing on highest level. So to combine these things like company, the competition, the family, and that, that's my, my big thing that I found, uh, well, it's now 25 years ago and I'm still trying to live by as much as I can uh, day by day. You mentioned Taoism. There are, for example, on the tails of your aircraft, symbols that I believe, if I'm not mistaken, relate back to this philosophy Am I correct in saying that? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, and then I, I I started uh, doing that a while ago. Um, it just for me, it's just um, you know, there's there's more in life than just you know work hard. I believe a lot of things we achieve anyway is kind of coincidental. Uh, I mean, where we are born, you know, defines what we are able to achieve. So, the Tao symbols on the aircrafts. Um, 
give the you know, the aircraft itself, but also all of us in the company, all the customers we touch, a certain uh, a certain spirit in a way that is positive and that we uh, hopefully you know have have good days day by day. That's kind of the the feeling uh, that's in in this, and then you find it everywhere in the company on the aircraft and in different ways, and um, that's that's important for sure. Yo, a quick break here to address the drop zone owners listening to the pod. If you're a DZO, then you know the insanity of taking your passion and making it your business. Mm, why'd you do that? Running a DZ is hard. Between the stressors of liability, 30-day payment terms on fuel after four weeks of miserable weather, and angry staff who are convinced they've been skipped in the rotation, you need a tool that helps reduce your stress. Enter Burble Software. Conceived by a DZO who's been in the trenches just like you, Burble is the most sophisticated manifest and booking software on the planet. Your life as a DZO is hard enough, so don't be that DZO who tries to save a few bucks using software that wasn't built for us. Burble, the must-have drop zone management software for the 182DZ to the multi-turbine monster. Burble. When you uh, st- were running that or operating the drop zone in Spain and, and then a couple of years later establishing GoJump in Germany, did you have a lot of business experience prior to that? Or what shaped your business philosophy? I, I didn't have any experience. I'm not coming from an entrepreneur family as well. I have a couple uncles that had um, businesses, smaller ones local ones i did it by you know learning by doing in a sense and uh, i strongly believe in living in the moment so achieving big things come from you know focusing on the moment do the little things all the time and repetitive especially in a business like we do like repeat stuff and 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 build from what you're learning and be be uh, brave that's i think that's the most important thing if you're coming from Nothing, and I started really the business at nothing. I mean, I had I had literally five thousand dollars back in two thousand and six when I started Go Jump brand in Germany, and learned it on the way. The only thing I have is a banking background. I originally had an apprenticeship in Switzerland, nineteen eighty three to eighty six, uh, where I learned, you know, in a way the banking business and the 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 basics, which is is good, you know, to understand numbers and then be able to put together a business plan but that's that's about it that's about my experience i had when i started what would you say is has been your your biggest let's say this if i were to come to you and say mike i'm 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 wanting to start a drop zone what would you say is is the biggest lesson that i should learn in order to have the success that you've experienced (laughs) It's a good question. Yeah, I, I, I probably would ask that person to sit down for six hours and watch what's mm-hmm. happening. And then, you know, if you would see Oceanside like yesterday, you know, we did 17 loads, 103 tandems. By the way, airspeed is training in Oceanside right now. So that was kind of interesting and, uh, together with the interview today. And, you know, you would probably get a feel for, wow, that's really smooth. It's really running, you know, precise almost like a, a watch swiss watch i will call it and and to achieve something like this i think you need a lot of patience patience in all aspects like you need to have patience you know to train your people to explain everybody what you're actually looking for them to do is it an instructor a packer a pilot office whatever the same what i said before you know start with the little things first don't try to be big mm. in the first place and and start building it up and that starts with a lot of small things in the in the first place mm-hmm. like you know how it looks like how it feels like the environment there's a lot of things you need to understand i think to run a nice uh, drop zone it needs time i think if you're patient you know that's probably the most important thing when you start to go jump in germany in, in 2006 as you mentioned just starting out with five thousand dollars what do you think that you did differently or most successfully that allowed that drop zone to scale the way that it did? I really honestly believe the biggest question you should ask yourself in any business, drop zone specifically, is how would you like to um, experience as a customer when you arrive at that mm-hmm. drop zone? 
uh, yourself, like when you go to a hotel or whatever. So if you try to see your business from the customer perspective, from A to Z, like from the start to the finish, I think then you can start really look into things that make that experience better. And that's what I did in, in Germany first. There were, there were a lot of things would be too big to exp explain it here, but a lot of things, you know, that were against that, like I give you a small example, like there were a lot of, I don't know if that's known here in the US actually, but there are a lot of, of chains like red and white chains they use on construction sites, you know, that were uh, put up basically to tell the customer, don't get, go here, don't do this, don't do that. So it was always a negative thing. That's just a small example to not do things where I believe exactly the opposite. The customer is the one that should experience ourselves from the inside. I mean, there's obviously a limit where they can go or they can't go to an aircraft that's running but with, without an instructor. But in general, you know, it should be a really open house. Like you invite somebody in your house at home and, and give the customer that feeling. And if you see it from that perspective, you can start building it from there. What is needed that the customer has this experience? And for us, for example, that means like we, we have a, a, a large call center in Las Vegas with full, six full-time employees where a lot of other companies, I mean, these days it's hard to find a phone number on a website because nobody wants you to call them because it's cost. And we are completely the opposite. We want the customer to experience us first before they even arrive at the drop zone to get that good feeling from the first place. So I think that's the main thing I did in, in Germany, basically make the drop zone welcoming and then start, you know, all the other stuff like marketing and get things going. Because if you promise something to the customer in the marketing, you know, you should experience it at least as good as when he arrives. So if you so, have a great marketing and everybody feels like that's great, you know, and then you go there and feels like, ooh, that feels completely different, mm -hmm. then you will not have a successful business, um, you know, because there's no more, re there's no reviews, there's no people coming back. And that's kind of, the, the, the base is the feeling that the customer has in the experience. I will say as a, as someone that is very big about customer experience, it, it makes me so happy to hear that because uh, it's to me that, exceeding expectations of a customer yes. creates uh, word of mouth, which is so powerful. Mike, in, in owning a drop zone, it is filled with highs and lows. It, it, there, there's obviously a lot of stress involved as it relates to people getting injured or just weeks and weeks of bad weather and the finances, etc. But I read that in 2010, one of your aircraft, I don't know that mm -hmm. I've ever, I could say that maybe any DZO would actually be able to say this, but your, one of your aircraft was hijacked. W would you share, enlighten me on this story? Yes, I mean, it's, it, it's actually something I would love not to be able to talk about because it was su such a crazy experience. And it was six days before the, the birth of my second son. It was kind of a crazy thing. I that was the first winter I rented out the plane. I bought a, the, my first plane in 2008. And obviously Berlin in the winter, we couldn't fly. So I started to rent it out that winter the first time to the south, to Portugal. And long story short, somebody rented the aircraft from them, basically, and then wanted to take a few pictures on the flight to Lisbon. And um, two jumpers joined them. And then after 15 minutes into the flight, you know, he pulled a, a gun and, and put it on the head of the pilot and, and gave him a, a note um, that the jumpers have to leave. And uh, so he they had to jump and it was very low, uh, but they made it out on a reserve canopy. So that was good. And then he forced the pilot to jump and he said, he's going to take over the aircraft and the pilot refused to jump. So they were fighting over the gun and, you know, it's, it's really like Hollywood, you know, but it really happened like this. And then they crash landed into a small airfield and my pilot was able to jump out of the door and took the gun. And then this guy had a bag in the, a big bag in the back of the pack. And then they had a, a, a rifle in there and he shot himself in my plane, committed suicide. And that was the end, kind of the end of the story, you know, but uh, it put me, besides the experience, it put me in a really, really bad spot because b back then we were still pretty small and, the, you know, an aircraft was a big big deal um, for a company like us for drop zone and uh, it was only like six or eight weeks to the start of the season and had a basically destroyed aircraft sitting somewhere in the south of Europe 
you know, all the stuff that comes with it. And then the insurance didn't pay. And, you know, it was a fight for three years. And the only reason they paid at the end was um, that I still had the, the war and the hijack insurance on there because um, originally we did that for the ferry from New Zealand to to Europe because we were flying through a few countries with the possibilities, but you would not never think to have that for a skydive operation. But that at the end saved me because, um, you know, they had to pay a force in court and uh, long story. Uh, it's all in the book too, but, uh, you know, managed to get back on my feet. Well, it was a tough time. Yeah. What type of aircraft was it? It was a PAC 750 and it was only two years wow. old. By then they were, I think $1.4 million. And that was a small business still, you know, it's, 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 it's very tough. I mean, if something like this happened that you can't believe and I had to go down there and then just made it back for the birth, you know, two days before he got born, I was back in Germany. And so everything worked out, but, uh, it's, it's, it's that part of entrepreneurship. I believe, you know, people can see in the skydiving business, I think is even higher on that pressure. Because we have a few things we need to deal with as drop zone owners. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. the weather that can change a day completely from a great day to nothing. It's things like that, you know, it can it can basically put you out of business and leave you with a lot of depth. And mm -hmm. uh, it's not even your your fault. You didn't do anything wrong, you know. But um, so that's that's tough. Yeah. What was your mental state in that time? Because you know we can look back and then go, wow you did well, you, you came out of that okay. But as entrepreneurs, when we're in crisis, the responsibility is all on your shoulders. Obviously, losing a, a major aircraft like that, it's a, it makes one wonder how you ever even continued as a drop zone owner. Just share with me the, the mental state that you were in during that time as you're about to have a baby on the way just days later. I, I think it's... It depends how strong you are internally, I believe. There's, there's a book that I read later, uh, Ben Horowitz, The Hard Things About the Hard Things. And it's basically, you know, he's talking about these two CEOs. One is the freedom CEO. That's when everything goes nice and you kind of, you know, think about maybe, you know, do a team event and, you know, you chatty chatty and everything is great. And then there's the war CEO, you know, that's when you have to go into the tunnel. And there's nobody else that can save the company in that mo moment. So it's only you and all the pressure is sitting on you. And you can't share it with anybody. You can't share it with your wife. You can share it with your best friend because nobody really understands how serious this is. And nobody is able to, you know, help you solve that problem that is basically life-threatening. Not in a sense of dying, but life-threatening of your life with family and everything, if you're going to make it or not. You know, that is very nicely described. I believe, you know, how you can survive situations like this. If you are strong enough to do that, and he's talking about most of people are just not strong enough to, to go into, you know, that position and basically, you know, do it step by step. And that's how I, I solve problems when they're really big. Like last year was a, a really challenging year as well. And I'm trying to look at it from the outside and then, okay, what's the next step? And don't see the big picture. A little bit the same like I explained about building a drop zone. You don't necessarily want to have that huge picture and say like I do all the same, at, at, all at the same time. It's, it's like, okay, what's first? So for me, first was to get back home you know, to have a nice birth of my, my son. That was my first priority. And then from there, I started to work, you know, piece by piece. My first priority was I need an aircraft to run the operation because if we don't do the operation, there's no cash flow. So the first thing I did was renting an aircraft, you know, and then start piece by piece. And then you have to fight the insurance and all this stuff and get the plane back. You know, it's sitting in a field, so it has to go somewhere. And all these little things. So if you achieve that, and, and, and that's really Taoism, you know, it, they define it as living in the moment. I don't know, you can call it this way, or just go step by step in life. And that, that makes the big goals happen. So the big goal in this sense for me was only to get back to neutral again, where I was minutes before that happened. And that took me about a year to get there. And, and then you, you come back to that situation. But 
I believe after these 17 years, it takes a toll on your health. Uh, over all these years, you have to be careful that it's not overwhelming uh, mm. too much. But I, I think there's a price you pay as an entrepreneur or um, a business owner in that way. And if you're you know, healthy and, and, and lucky, maybe luck, I don't know about to go through it but you have to understand also you know mental stress can be can be dangerous you know mm. to your life one of my upcoming questions just to hone in on that moment would you say that your toughness to manage that is learned or do you feel that that was innate within you naturally i believe it's naturally and I believe coming back to a, a f further uh, earlier question, it's it's related to the loss of my father, mm. because even it sounds crazy, you know what happened with that aircraft. It was far from the experience I had losing my father. So it was not mm. threatening myself in a in a way that I felt like this is, you know, very a very strong feeling. It was just like you have to go through this. I think if you have it in yourself, you can do it. You know, it, it, it might not work because you end up not having any cash, you know, in, in a very, mm. you know, normal world. So you can do whatever you want, but if you run out of cash or you can't achieve it in time, then at some point you're just going out of business, which can be a big deal, especially when you have a financed aircraft, you know, and, and you have a lot of debt left and there's no aircraft, mm. you know, in a sense. So... I believe strongly, you know, you can learn it to some point, but I think most of the people who are in these positions are there for a reason. Maybe similar to the co competition, you know, most people who win world championships are probably there for a reason. And it's not achievable just like, hey, let's take, five, you know, four people and let them jump a lot. Yeah. They become world champions. I don't, I don't think that's how it works. In listening to you, as I'm processing, I'm thinking if it's, it's a little bit of psychology in a way, in that if I have no fear of failing or losing, because many people who are, are trying to do something significant, often fear holds them back from achieving their full potential. But if there's no fear, because the worst thing has already occurred and you survive that, then it seems like as an entrepreneur, you can be more comfortable with the risk because you're not as concerned about losing. Is that a fair statement? That's exactly true. And this is very down to the point. I strongly believe the fear is holding, you know, most of us back. Not only in a business, it could be in a relationship, it could be anything. You know, we are, we are afraid of, of losing. And, and this comes originally, I believe, it's my strong belief from, from the being afraid of dying and not knowing what we're actually supposed to do here. So if we start to realize that, you know, we don't have to do anything, that might help us, you know, release from that fear of something could go wrong. If, if mm. nothing needs to happen, nothing can really go wrong. So and together with that experience with my father, that, that really, that, that's something different. It's hard to explain, you know, if you obviously never experienced it, but there's no more fear. There's, I mean, I have a lot of fear. It's not that I don't have fear, you know, but there's not that fear like, what, what would be the worst that happens? Will I be at status quo? I believe if you, if you have that ability, you can achieve great things because most of the people, they are afraid you know, to lose something instead of being excited to achieve it. I believe strongly that holds a lot of us back to actually get their potential, you know, done. Whatever that is, it doesn't, it, it, you could be a painter just saying like, mm -hmm. oh, I feel like I could be a good painter, but maybe your environment, your family, they feel like, yeah, what do you want to paint? That's a non-money job. You can't do that. That's fear mm -hmm. too. You know, I'm, I'm afraid to, to, you know, do something that everybody else feels like, hmm, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, skydiving business. I remember, you know, when I, when I wanted to skydive, you know, in my own family, my brothers and sisters, they always felt like I'm the only one that's not doing something. All the mm -hmm. others became teachers and, you know, and did normal jobs in a sense. And at the end, I ended up, you know, having a huge business in, in the United States. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not necessarily that, 
you know, it's it's the big fear of like, wow, these big these big projects. It can be very small. It could be fear internally, you know, that you don't do small things. So I, I, I yeah, I believe what what you're saying. And it's not the fear of dying; it's the fear of losing. Mike, you ended up selling Go Jump in Germany in, I believe, two thousand and seventeen or sixteen. Excuse me, and then. As you've described, you packed up 17 suitcases with your family in tow and moved to America. Why? Why did you do that? Well, originally we had this, well, I I sold it after we were in America in 2017 because we had this kind of crazy idea and we were looking into building Gold Jump Queenstown in New Zealand because, you know, I was at some point in my life, I had this, you know, kind of vision to jump 24 hours um, all over the world and then, you know, we ended up in the US, it just became too much because uh, even with, you know, Europe nine hours, Berlin in the summer was very busy too. Uh, we did about 25,000 jumps and then Oceanside. So it was constant going on. When you wake up, you know, this happens over there. When you go to bed, this happens here, you know, whatever. So at some point I had to decide. And uh, in 17, I basically decided uh, I want to focus on the US market. It was also that we felt like we, we're going to make it here. Mm-hmm. You know, when we moved over here, I mean, it was a, it was a really big move. You know, my wife is a midwife. Uh, she's originally from, you know, Germany, from Berlin. By then, my three children, you know, one was born here five years ago. Um, they were all, you know, growing up over there. And I had kind of this vision. I always loved the southwest of the U.S. I was spending a lot of time out here in that nature and when this opportunity came up in, in Oceanside, it was obviously exciting for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean like it's super exciting for everybody else in the family. So we had to have good talks together. And we also just bought a new house in Germany, which was always a dream for my wife. And, and But, you know, that's the big part. I don't think it's my part. That's easy. I love to move. But the big part was actually my wife that she said like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm coming with you and, and let's let's give it a try. Now, eight years later, you see it like, oh, it's a nice decision, you know, because we ended up in a nice place. But by then, and I always have that example from our neighbor, he's a, he's a dentist back in Germany. When he heard that we are moving to the US, he said like, you guys are crazy. You just made it here in Germany successfully. And now you give all this up and, and you know, go to a complete foreign country and have no clue what's going to happen. And and I, my answer was, that's exactly it. That's why we do it. You know, and it's the same thing I was trying to explain with the fear and, and achieving things in your life. You know, if, if you do it for the success or if you do it for the money, we would have stopped in Germany because you say like, hey, it's a great life, you know, but that was never the reason behind. And that's kind of an important part. Why you do things? Why do you want to achieve having Go Jump America? You know, it's not, it's not the money. The money is just a result if you're successful. But the reason why you do it is you want to create something in your life that's kind of interesting and maybe different than what was there before. Yeah, that's, that's the reason why, why we came here. The reason why I sold Germany was just it was too much. It was I had to travel five, six times over there a year. It was just too much of a burden on all of us. When you mentioned uh, 24 hours, is that sort of generating income? I know you're not income focused or driven, but in different time zones, both operations going simultaneously, literally building a business as you sleep. Was that the original intent? I don't know. It was just like, you know, people sometimes have crazy ideas. I think it was just kind of a crazy idea. I thought like it would be a cool thing. You know, if, if people are jumping with Go Jump 24 hours a day, 365 days, mm. you know, and then New Zealand and, and is completely opposite to uh, Europe. And then, you know, Europe is nine hours difference the other way to the U.S. So it's kind of that that was the, you know, kind of thing. But um, that was only for a year. I mean, we looked into it and everything and... Um, but at the end, we decided not to do it. It was, a, it was a smart decision. When you came to the U.S., did you were you honing in on a drop zone in California specifically? Or was it just, you know, you were open to any possibility? Well, it was by then Rich Grimm owned uh, Tsunami Skydivers in Oceanside. And I knew Rich from the 90s. He was running the, the restaurant in Eloy when I spent a lot of time in Eloy jumping. 
And I heard from somebody um, that he was maybe looking to sell his place. So I kind of met him again in uh, 2004, I think it was, uh, 14 it was. And we started talking and he said, yeah, he could imagine, you know, selling the place. And, and that was the reason why we ended up in Oceanside. And we needed something, you know, to be, be able to legally live in the U.S. and to get a visa. And that's, uh, that's where I ended up buying, you know, basically the, the business from Rich in Oceanside. It gave us the visa to come over here, the whole family, to legally live here and work. And by now we have green cards and then two more years, I think we're going to apply for the U.S. passport. But that's mm. the story, yeah. Are you proud you are living the American dream? Well, honestly, I, I was never a big, you know, country person, like I'm proud of something, but I'm actually proud to live in the U.S. and be part of this United States uh, mm. dream in a, in a way. I, I love the country. I love the people that live here. I love the spirit that's still there. You even, you, you know, read different, but the, the daily life is still in the U.S. That's still what I feel, you know, what I see. And yeah, I, I feel like I'm proud to be part of mm. this and, and contribute to this to, you know, go on. Do you allow yourself to feel proud of yourself? It, it, being that you're so busy and building continuously, do you ever pause and go, wow? Well, uh, James, I'm actually not that busy anymore since December. I don't know if you have heard that, but that's part of the story of myself as well. I ended up in the ER in uh, Las Vegas with a blood issue in the brain. Most likely stress-related. I was lucky enough to, to get out of there the same I kind of was before even, you know, changed my life uh, from like, mm you know, the high speed to slowing it down. So I hired a couple more people in the company. So I basically all go jump America is running independent from me now these days on the daily side. I'm involved in the back end and still, you know, running it as a CEO, but um, not so much involved in the daily business anymore. So that gives me a lot more flexibility and time. And mm -hmm. that was my original <laughs> definition of success when I started mm -hmm. in Germany to work for 10 years like this and then be free, independent. Mm. And I think I'm pretty close to that now, realizing, you know, what's needed in my life to be able to have a good, hopefully, 30 more years ahead, mm. um, you know, to enjoy. But uh, definitely the question you ask, it, it's, it's, it's every day it's on my table. I do a lot of stuff. It seems like I'm working a lot, but I'm actually not working that much anymore. I'm more the... I would call it the brain of the company who is overlooking all the things. And we have over 100 employees now and free contractors, so it's pretty big. But there's great people in the management now that are doing great, you know, great work every day in all the locations. Finding managers that will share in your attention to detail, have good business sense, understand skydiving... Has that been a challenge for you to find managers that that operate or think the way that you would wish for them to think? I would say two things. One thing is I call it the 90% philosophy, which is I don't expect everybody to do the same like I do, but it should be 90%. That's a good number to not stress out the people on your perfection or whatever you want to call it. A business owner usually has a kind of a perfection in himself or herself. But if you ask people to do 90%, you, it, it works really well. The mm. second thing is, I think it's super important that you take your time to teach them. So take your person that every single new employee that's coming to the company, not a time instructor necessarily, but in the call center, that is customer related or an ops manager. I'm personally, in a way, train them, not the technical training, but the philosophy. Once you have that achieved, like our chief operation manager, like Steve Edwards, um, he's overviewing the others. So he has that for himself now more and teaches that to the other people more and more. So that's how mm -hmm. you build a company philosophy that I believe, you know, everybody feels like it's important that the customer gets treated nicely. And then it, mm -hmm. you know, trickles down to the instructors. It's important that every single passenger is a new customer it's not like my jump number eight mm. and i think that's the most important thing to maybe lead by example and and also take the time as needed to teach them and mm. ask them for the same kind of like presence in the moments mm. when they're actually working 
Let's come back to your health scare. This this occurred in the midst of negotiation or towards the finalization of of Scott of Hawaii's acquisition. Also, you know, shortly after the aircraft accidents in in Oceanside. You know, what was that period like for you? And from the outside, it sounds like it would be directly related to stress. There was a lot of stress there, a lot on the line, a lot at stake. Yeah, I believe it added up over these years. And it started in 2019 when uh, California changed the law to AB5, which meant simply that there's no more free contracting. Everybody had to be employed. And even these days, there's a lot of drop zones in the California. They don't do that, but it's illegal now that you you know pay an instructor as a free contractor in California. So we had to hire everybody, and then I had a big lawsuit from an instructor. It ended up in a class action lawsuit in California. It's possible that a single person can file a class action lawsuit, even nobody joins. It was a three point four million dollar lawsuit, and we won it, you know, after two years. But it was very expensive and very stressful. And because we had the documentation and everything. And then workers' comp was another thing, you know, in California. It would be too long to explain it here, but it can be very challenging um, with workers' comp, um, how it's used, how it's managed. People stay on there forever. It's very costly. And, uh, And then in 2022, you know, when the first crash happened, it was the first accident of an aircraft besides the hijacking 2010 that actually happened in my business in 17 years. And then three months later, exactly the same thing. Even it was a plane from, from Texas, not ours, not our pilots, but still it was happening in Oceanside. And, you know, all together, it added up uh, to a very stressful situation. Um, obviously with the FAA and everybody, and also to keep the business going, you know, it was expensive to rent aircraft and the aircraft was on the, on the ground destroyed and the NTSP was involved. So I think all that together, contributed to what happened at the end in December and which was a little bit of wake up call for myself to make sure to take care of, you know, my health and my, my time. I feel now it's, mm. it's, it's about eight months ago. So I feel pretty good now came back to kind of normal with maybe doing 50% of the work and also not, you know, let yourself be stressed too much about smaller things. But if, if things add up, I think that's when the challenge starts to put pressure on your body. And also the age might be a factor. I'm 55. You know, it's not the same like when you're 35. And uh, so you have to be careful. Yeah. Would you, do you feel that, you know, when you're young and your aircraft gets hijacked, you know, you are tough, you, you manage it. But I think as we all age or many age, it is... I will say my parents, as they have aged, discuss feeling greater vulnerability as they've gotten older. You know, my parents have been entrepreneurs also for 20 years, and and that stress started to get to them. And the cavalier boldness that they had when they started their business, you know, that softened through time. I'm not suggesting that you've softened. But would you say that the that fighting spirit that you had 20 years ago is not the same as it is today? Um, yes and no. I would, I would think the fighting spirit is still the same, but not as intense. I agree with what you're saying. You know, as you get older, you start to realize also there's not everything that you can solve because there's things happening that are out of your control, like the aircraft crashes. You know, we were really analyzing everything and I couldn't say like there was much that, you know, we could really do to change that. So it, it puts you more in a place where, or it puts myself in a place, I could say for myself, where you start to realize, you know, it's, it, there's, there's a lot you can control, but there's a lot you can't. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that maybe more in depth, you know, it gives you the opportunity to be a little bit more like, okay, we just focus on what we can do. And then, you know, hopefully the things are good, you know, happening in, in a good way. But um, that's maybe the biggest difference when you're younger, uh, I feel like, you know, it's, you feel like you, the, the, the more you do, the less it will happen. And I had a couple of experience. Well, Portugal was definitely one with the hijack, but there's just nothing you can really change. This podcast is sponsored by Beyond Marketing, the digital marketing agency for the skydiving industry. As avid podcast consumers ourselves, we're not fans of ads during a podcast, so we'll spare you the details about why we love building websites and helping businesses show up in Google search results. 
But just know this, we're passionate about the skydiving industry and how it markets itself. Look us up at dropzone.marketing. Again, that's dropzone.marketing. In your years of running a drop zone, and you know, we may have already discussed the answer, but what has been your toughest day? <laughs> toughest day. I think my toughest day was in February 2008, looking back. And that was when the bank called me a week before I supposed to pay the aircraft that they are not financing because they decided it's not part of their business model after six or seven months. And I had to negotiate with New Zealand because it was 12 hours difference. It was two o'clock or one o'clock or three o'clock in the morning, negative in Celsius, negative 15 degrees in Berlin. And I had to do it outside because my son Leon was very young by then and I didn't want to disturb them. So I was negotiating with them that they are not selling the aircraft because I had already paid $130,000. And by then this was, you know, such a huge amount. If they would have sold the aircraft, I would have lost everything. That was probably the toughest few days I was going through. Even it sounds like not as much as other stuff, but it was in the beginning of my entrepreneurship with a lot less experience. I haven't known the book from Ben Horowitz by then about the war CEO, but that was definitely the war CEO I was fighting there and then sued the, the bank. And we won again, but it took me three weeks, you know, that they finally paid and then paid an extra $50,000 for all the costs involved. If you have never been there, I think it's hard to understand, you know, these situations that are, it is life or death, not about dying, but life or death of your, you know, success or surviving a business, as a business owner. Mike, what has been your best day? The best day is happening every day. I see Tanim passengers, you know, landing and being so happy what they just achieved. I think it's a mix between they can't believe that they actually jumped out of a plane and just overwhelming emotions. Even after I'm now, my first jump is now turning 40 years next year. I still see that as the biggest achievement our sport can give to anybody you know, most most skydivers end up doing a tandem first. So that's the start. And that's what I see. And even after all these years in doing 10,000s of tandems every year, it's it's still that what I feel like that's why we do it. You know, and that's really, I, I love it. I mean, I have so many talks. Sometimes I work a day and, you know, checking in people. And it's so great to see these people. And that's that's the difference we make, I believe, with our sport everywhere in, you know, where there is a drop zone. I mean, people are experiencing something that is very extraordinary. And I always tell them, you know, you will never forget that day when you did your first jump. And it's the same for me. I never forget the day I did my first jump. Mm. So that's my best day. It's kind of every day I'm actually out there, which is not that often anymore. But, you know, that's, that's the, the, the happiness in the, in the people jumping out of a plane. Is legacy something important to you? Do you think about that? Legacy, would you, would you mean like some, something is left from me when, I, when I'm leaving the earth? Yes. Yes. It's not important to me at all. It's, it's really, I really strongly believe, you know, I, I, I got the presence of that life here and I, I enjoy every day, especially here in Southern California. It's such a great lifestyle. And uh, I'm sure thankful for that. And once it's over... You know, it's not that important. It's maybe important for my children and for my wife that they feel like it was nice to be around him. Um, but not so much in a sense like, oh, this guy created Go Jump America. Wow. You know, mm. I, that's why I actually wrote the book. I think it's better to see when you're still alive that people can read the story and feel like, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. And maybe it, it you know, it gives somebody else the feeling like, oh, I never saw it from this perspective. That could actually help me do stuff, you know, in, in other areas in their life. So that's maybe what is more what I'm looking for, but not necessarily that people feel like, oh, this guy was doing something very specific. There's many, many people who do much bigger things that we will never hear about, you know, in different mm. parts of the world that are much bigger than, mm. you know, building a business. Before we talk about the book, tell me about Go Jump Hawaii. That is a major accomplishment. Can you just share with us a little bit about how that came together? 
Yes. First, I want to say I bought Pacific Skydiving, not Skydive Hawaii, because oh, I beg otherwise your pardon. Excuse they're going, they're going to be upset that Skydive Hawaii. <laughs> but I don't know. Hawaii was always my dream. And I visited Hawaii in 2000, and I think it was 17 or 15 something. And somehow it was always, you know, as, as we were going before COVID, you know, we were going strong. I was uh, close to achieving a drop zone on the East Coast as well and, and built Go Jump America bigger. And then Hawaii obviously is the other end and Hawaii was always like, I never thought it's coming up because I was not in the position to say like, I'm going to start something out there. And then all of a sudden this came all together. Ben Divine, you know, I, I helped them in, I think it was 2000 or two years ago. And they asked me to, USPA asked me to send a letter to the governor and, you know, because they threatened to shut the airport. So I did that. And then Ben was involved in all this in the airport saving. And then he reached out to me because he wanted to retire. And it was just a few weeks after the second crash. And I was far from anything like, you know, doing more. Mm. Somehow we ended up having a few chats. You know, it, it was the missing piece for Go Jump America because we have such a great infrastructure with software and call center and, and everything that we needed another you know major operation that is a perfect fit to what we have right now and hawaii is just so special <laughs> i think mm. it's one of the best jumps you can do really uh, mm. in the united states so it's it's great you know, to have it mike who do you look up to in the sport well in the beginning as i mentioned before it was tom pyrus was my big you know big person that i felt like he was just doing stuff that i loved and he was also a little bit a rebel back then in the days. And then there's a few people I really think, you know, or admire is Bill Booth, you know, what he did for the sport. I had once the chance many years back, 30 years back, to have a tour with him in the factory. It was so great. It always stays with me. It was fun. And he's he's also such a funny guy. I haven't seen him in a long time, but did some great things for the sport. Um, there's in the competition world, obviously there's a few people I really, you know, was always my dream becoming four-way world champion so dan bc and the you know the whole airspeed environment how they did that larry hill lil from sky of arizona i i admire um great people very nice and still super successful business people but always stayed the same i met them in coolidge many many you know decades ago and they have never changed yeah that's you know there's there's a few people out there that you know followed their dreams which i you know, feel like they're, this is great and they're role models for the competition side. And then from the business side, definitely Larry and Lil, what they did. They always had the, the, that picture in mind I talked about in the first 10 minutes in Germany that they created Eloy out of, you know, the desert basically. And always were thinking, what can we do to make it better, nicer? You know, it was not only like, how can we make more money? It was more about like, you know, building a coffee shop and building a new restaurant and doing this and have nice grass. And now, you know, it, it went on like, I think two years ago, three years ago, they built it all that nice pond. It, it's that spirit I really love in people when they keep doing things just for the thing, not necessarily for becoming richer or... And, and you followed that example. I mean, you are very generous in your sponsorship of, of various teams and not partial sponsorship, full jumping sponsorship. Is that inspired by them? Yes, definitely inspired by them. Um, I also believe strongly, I mean, Bill, Bill Booz and Ted Strong at the end saved the sport. That's my way of seeing it, you know, is the tandem that we are able to, you know, pay the bills for the ex these expensive aircraft and operations. But it's only one part of the sport. If we only see the business and we only go for the money, you know, I think we are missing something. And we have seen that a little bit in New Zealand and Australia for a while where they were focusing only on the tandem and then running out of jumpers and at the end running out of instructors. But my belief was always, you know, some money from the business side, which is the tandem for us, has to go back into the sport. And obviously my heart is still in the four-way. Even I'm not jumping anymore, but um, that's why, you know, I'm putting, you know, quite some money in, in, into the sport back. Also airspeed, they were going to the World Cup in Norway because it's, you know, it's always tough in, in our sport to, to spend the money. So I, I talked to Niklas because he was here for a few times coaching teams and uh, that's why they are now training here for two weeks, preparing and uh, be able to do the trip there and bring the gold, you know, that's kind of the vision I have, like 
some of it needs to go back into the sport. It's quite full circle to say that you were inspired by, say, Dan BC and Arizona Airspeed. And now, all these years later, Arizona Airspeed is now training at, at one of your drop zones. It's quite something. Yeah, it puts a smile on my face. I tell you, I was yesterday and the, when they started and it was like, kind of, it's kind of, you know, cool. You know, that's how I would call it, you know. Uh, just two more questions, Mike. One thing I think about a lot is crossroads moments where, for my own life, I've had moments where I had to make a decision. And the decision that I made may have been difficult. It was the harder of the two decisions to make, but the reward was great. And I often think, had I not made that course direction, where might I be? What would you say has been a significant juncture in in your life that had you not taken made that one decision you may not be where you are today yes it's it's very true what you're saying and uh, maybe it even comes together with the you know not not being fearful just trust trust your life and uh, for me that was 2005 after the spain experience didn't end up the way it was supposed to be for me to become a partner down there and I had nowhere to go. I was 37 years old by then and um, had nothing left. So I decided to go to Berlin and just wait. And I was sitting in Berlin for six months and drank coffee and was just waiting that something comes up. And for a long time, nothing happened. And out of the blue, you know, um, Axel was his name. He called me on the phone. It was early January 2000 and, um, 2006. And he was working for a business in Germany that were renting planes for cargo and skydiving. And they happened to have three drop zones. And one of the drop zones was Berlin. And he said on the phone, I heard you are in Berlin. And I was just wondering if you would be interested to maybe run the Berlin drop zone for us. And that's how the whole thing started, you know. And that never on my mind to become a drop zone owner or, you know, you even run a drop zone like this. But that's how it started. And the reason why it started is because I made that decision, where should I go? So I would go to Berlin because my wife, well, by then, you know, Peggy was there and, and uh, our first son, we had a, a difficult time by then. But I went back to Berlin and then um, stayed there. And that was a big change, you know, that made, that basically led the way to today, why we are talking. Suppose you had not taken that phone call. Where would Mike Vetter be today? Yeah, it's a good question. I have no clue, but uh, I think it maybe even saved my life. I don't know, but you know, it's it, it gave me a good a good purpose and somehow a, a direction. Yeah, it was good. It was important. Mm-hmm. Mike, let's talk about your book. I'm curious how you found the time to write it, with you know the acquisitions of Vegas and getting Oceanside going, and now Hawaii. When did you start writing this? I started in October 21. Wow. In Sardinia, in Italy. <laughs> I took a week and started writing. And I had this project in my head for a long time. And then my children and my wife kept, you know, teasing me and saying, well, it's never going to happen. You're always talking about it, but it's never going to happen. So at some point, I felt like I want to write it. And, and that's, I don't know why, because I'm not necessarily a person doing what I'm doing right now that much you know, going to the outside and tell people and do what I felt like there's something I can tell maybe uh, people, not only in the skydive world, but, you know, business owners, fathers, hey, you know, it's all normal that it's a big challenge. And uh, it's not just because, you know, this business is big. It was all easy. It was like, oh, this guy is good. I can't do that. Everybody can do it. So that's why I originally put it together. And the second reason, and that's maybe the most important reason for me, is I wanted my children to know me a little better. I mean, you're doing living daily life with your children, but it's not necessarily about all these details in your earlier life. Even my wife, when she read it first, these first few chapters are all about my you know, childhood, about my younger age and how I started. And, and that was a reason, too, that my children can hopefully read it if they're interested and see like their father a little bit in a in a brighter or not a brighter a wider picture and understand maybe a little bit more what he's doing on a daily base and uh, we see yeah it's it's um mm. that was the intention the name of the book is vision and courage the go jump america story the american dream is only a dream if it doesn't kill you 
Yes, it's uh, it's funny because uh, a doctor friend of us from Sedona, where where I got treated uh, a couple times, not specifically for something, but just in general, she said that because when that happened in December, uh, my wife talked to her and you know what to do and back and forth and and she said that sentence because she's treating a lot of people with these uh, symptoms that are coming from the East Coast management positions to Sedona to calm down and have mm -hmm. these issues. She said that one day, just out of the blue, and said, well, the American dream is only a dream if it doesn't kill you. And I thought that's so true, you know, that fits my story in a way really well. So I chose that mm -hmm. as a subtitle. And it also, I think it also makes you interesting. What does that mean? You know, is it skydiving related or is it busy? It's actually nothing with skydiving. It can kill you if you're not careful. If, you know, the challenges out there are big, running a business in America, especially with, you know, there's lots of lawsuits going on and people. And so that's, that's where it came from. Yeah. That's why mm. I chose it. Mike, I've, I, I'm really looking forward to reading it. When is it, when is it being released? The release date is going to be December 15. And it should be available everywhere. I'm just working now that it gets available on Barnes and Nobles and Amazon. And then we're also selling it directly because I have a, quite a, a few uh, or a lot, actually, um, customers. When I talk to them, when I'm on site, they're interested in the stores. They're going to sell it in their locations as well. But December 15, yeah, that's the official date we want to release it. It's coming out in German and in the, in English. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Mike, thank you for this time. I've really enjoyed getting to know more of who you are. Uh, I've admired you from afar, and uh, this has allowed me a great opportunity to, to feel inspired. Your story is truly inspiring, and uh, I can't wait for other people to learn about your story as well. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, James, for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the 20-Minute Call podcast. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you always have the latest episode downloaded. And leave a review if you really enjoyed the episode. If you want to contact the team, our email address is info at beyondmarketing.xyz. This episode was edited and engineered by Garnet Znydrick of the YouTube channel Blue Skies Fun Days. Thanks for listening. And join us in two weeks for our next episode.